Today, we're going to look at a psalm that encourages us to connect justice to our spirituality. And so let me read Psalm 82. I'll make a couple of introductory comments, and I want you to hopefully have a sense of what is going on here by the end. This is, for cultural reasons, one of the most challenging psalms to follow along what's happening as we read it. And so I'll give you some background in a bit. But here is Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. But instead of doing that, they, whoever they is, they have neither knowledge nor understanding They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And so I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like human beings, you will die and fall like any prince. I probably do not have time to go into this today, but really intriguingly, Jesus quotes this in a confrontational way to the Pharisees in John chapter 10. I said, you are gods. And yet you're going to die like human beings because of injustice. So I would encourage you to go look at that later. It gives a lot of insight in the psalm. And then the psalm ends with a really interesting prayer that I would guess many of us would feel uncomfortable praying with any real confidence. Rise up, O God. Arise. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is actually one of the most common prayers in the Psalter to ask God to rise up to arise, even to awake. God, it looks like you're sleeping, wake up. God, it looks like you're sitting, stand up and do something. It's a way to ask God to intervene in a situation where it looks like he is doing nothing. That is a very, very bold prayer. And so let's look at Psalm 82 for a few minutes, and then we're going to continue to um, have a season. Let me figure out how to be here for a second. We're going to have a season where after the sermon, we do the Lord's table, but you come up and it's a time of reflection where you can come at your own pace. You can walk around, you can sit down, you can reflect. We're going to have a few more worship songs, but we're also going to um, have a time of prayer where it could be totally quiet, just time to reflect on all you've heard today, to pray quietly to God. It could be praying out loud, um, but we're going to have a time of prayer and reflection after the sermon that's just kind of open to all of us. Psalm 82. So Psalm 82, the the big question that you have to at least grapple with, whether you figure it out or not, is who are the gods, plural, at the very beginning of the sermon, uh, at the very beginning of the psalm, who also show up at the end, who, one, are different from clearly the God of Israel, and who die at the end of the psalm. And there are three options, and it's really hard to know. The first option is that in the ancient world, this is actually Baal the god of the Mesopotamians, Asher, the god of the Assyrians, Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, Ra, one of the gods of the Egyptians, later on Zeus, Poseidon. It's gods that the Gentile nations have and that Yahweh, the god of Israel, who rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and who created all things, is summoning all of these other gods into his presence and critiquing them And I actually think there's a lot to be said for that interpretation. I'll get to it in a second. But where the main critique is not that they don't exist, 
The main critique is not that they encourage their worshipers into idolatry. The main critique is that they are instruments of injustice rather than justice among the nations. I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but let me just say it right now. If I had to sum up Psalm 82 in a couple of sentences, one would be there in the sermon title, which is in your bulletin, which is that there is no acceptable worship of God apart from justice. If we are characterized thoroughly by injustice in our lives, there is no possible way your worship to God can be acceptable. That is very clearly the point of the psalm. It's the point of many of these other passages. But I would also say this, which is very distinct of Psalm 82. There are a lot of gods out there in the universe. There's a lot of ideologies. There's a lot of worldviews, a lot of philosophies. And in our pluralistic culture, one of the real dilemmas is what, how do I know it's true? How do I know it's right? Like, is this worldview? Is this religion? Is that God actually exists? Is this the right ideology to have? And Psalm 82 makes the claim that the way you can pick out the true God from all the counterfeits is the true God is characterized by justice for the weak, for the powerless, for the poor, and for the vulnerable. And that any God, whether an actual God that worshipers are worshiping, like Marduk or Baal or Poseidon, or an ideology, an ultimate commitment, that even the person might perceive themselves to be secular and neutral and not religious, but they are giving their loyalty, their love, to something ultimate in the world, that when those gods are characterized by injustice, when they, to put it this way, when they leave victims behind them in their wake, that is how you know that they are counterfeits. That's how you know they're not real. And this, I think, has profound implications for us as Christians today. At the very beginning of the bulletin, I just found this recently, Tim Keller was here in New York City as a pastor and a Christian leader for 30 years, and he just died in the last couple of months. And in his book, Center Church, which I would guess is his most important book, it's for leaders in the church and for those in ministry, but I want you to listen to this quote at the beginning of the bulletin from Tim Keller. Isn't it a major issue that the evangelical church exists as a subcultural cul-de-sac? It's a place in the suburbs where, like, it's a dead end. Unable to speak the gospel intelligibly to most Americans. And is perceived to be concerned only with increasing our own power rather than with the common good. Of course it is. Early Christian bishops in the Roman Empire, by contrast, were so well known for identifying with the poor and the weak not just in the church, but outside of the church, that eventually, even though they were part of a minority religion, they were seen to have the right to speak for the local community as a whole. Caring for the poor and the weak became, ironically, a major reason for the cultural influence the church eventually came to have, came to wield. And then Keller says this, and I want you to really maybe underline this, think about this. If the church does not identify with the marginalized, it will itself be marginalized. This is God's poetic justice. That one of the main reasons, not the only, and it's different from person to person, but one of the primary reasons Christianity is so implausible to so many of our friends is because the church is so obviously not a group, a community committed to justice. When the church is characterized by injustice, by greed, by the accumulation of its own power, by the fulfillment of its own desires, and even actively wrongs others politically or sexually or um, culturally or in other ways in order to do what we want, it makes it harder to believe that the one true God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago. 
You can pick out the true God, and every human being subconsciously knows this on one level. The way you know the fake stuff from the real stuff is connected to justice, is connected to responding to the needs of the weak and the needy. And so going back to Psalm 82, it's also possible that the gods are, from a Christian perspective, a Jewish perspective, not actual gods, but what the New Testament would call principalities and powers, fallen angels, final uh, demons, stuff like that. But it's also possible, and I think that ultimately you don't have to choose between these interpretations, it's also possible that the gods of Psalm 82 are human beings who are in positions of power. It is true in the ancient world across the board that the gods, heaven, are not fully separate from earth, humans, and that kings and those in authority are especially known to represent the gods on earth, and the orders they oversee are seen as the embodiment of the will of their gods. And so to critique Marduk is itself necessarily a critique of Babylonian culture. To critique Asher is necessarily to say something negative about the Assyrian Empire. To critique the God who raised Jesus from the dead is necessarily to bring a critique against the church and vice versa. And I think pretty clearly Jesus uses it that way in John 10, that the Pharisees claim to be representing the God of Israel, and yet they are leaving victims behind them in their wake. And Jesus said, do you remember what Psalm 82 said? You have the authority of gods upon earth, and yet there is a death sentence upon you, because true gods come to the aid of the weak in the needy. And so ultimately, I think heaven and earth, they are distinguishable. Gods and human beings are different, but they're so blended together that I do think that we should hear Psalm 82 is not just a mythological claim about gods that we now know don't exist, but as a critique of social orders in, in the world that are perceived to be authorized and legitimized by religions or ideologies, even if they're not religious ideologies, and therefore, and here is something that happens, whether it's a religion or whether it's a secular ideology, when you see it as legitimating the way the society is running, one of the things it always does is it rationalizes why it's okay that you're leaving victims behind. It rationalizes away why it's okay. That's just a necessary sacrifice for the God that we serve. The great gods throughout human history are always the same, even if they go by different names, money, Sex, power, freedom. And the pattern is always the same. Something that's good, created by God. Sex is absolutely, undeniably good. Money is absolutely, unqualifiably good. Um, We don't have to be reticent about power. Power is good. It's created by God. We don't have to be critical of freedom. Freedom is good and created by God. But when those things go from good to great, and they become ultimate, they begin to leave victims in their trail And if they are ultimate, you will see the victims as a necessary sacrifice. And here is a good question to ask yourself on a regular basis. Are the victims left behind in the trail of our worship a bug or a feature of the way that we live? And so let me give you an example here. The next time, we we looked at it just a moment ago. The next time you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' kingdom manifesto for how we are supposed to live as a church— Here is something I want you to think about. Ask as you read it. And and, and here's a test that you can use for it. I think this is true. If a community would live by the Sermon on the Mount to the degree that, say, we a neighborhood church live together with ourselves, outside, with our neighbors, by the Sermon on the Mount, to the degree that we would do that consistently, we would leave behind no victims. 
We would accumulate no victims. No one would be wronged because we are following Jesus in these ways. Now, people would still be wrong because we are sinners. And so we would come to the Lord's table every single week, confession every single week and say, but the victims that we wrong would be in spite of the Sermon on the Mount, not because we are living it out. When, whether it's capitalism with money, whether it's the sexual revolution, whether it is um, politics of a certain order, all of which have so many good things about them, the victims they all leave behind them are not a bug, they are a feature. The victims of all of these gods are required by the way we live. No one looks at them and says, this is an accident in spite of the way we live. And Psalm 82 reminds us that what God cares about above all else is not the fulfillment of our desires, not our outward religiosity, but the presence of justice. Here's another thing that I want you to notice about Psalm 82, and it's something that across the board, among religious people, among secular people with ideology, we are very prone to ignore, to be blind to, um, to not notice, which is that the presence of injustice, if you're wondering, like, this is great, this is interesting, Nick, but justice, injustice, this is really abstract language, which it is. Every group in the history of the world claims to be characterized by justice. You will never find a group that's like, we're the injustice guys. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his letters and papers from prison talks about how outrageous it was that the Third Reich regularly used justice language for everything that they did. By the way, here is a quick side note. Um, I'll give you two examples. If you are prone to get really impressed by or intimidated people or groups that use justice language a lot or just use it very loudly and very passionately, which is not bad in and of itself, but if you're tempted to think that therefore means these are the justice people, that view is the justice view, I I would just point out two things in our own Christian circles that that maybe you've noticed. In the reformed world, if you don't know what that is, it's totally fine. In the reformed world in the church, grace is a really big word. If you go into a reformed church, you're going to hear about grace all the time. Grace, 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 grace. If you are in a Pentecostal or a charismatic church, you're going to hear people talk about the Holy Spirit all the time. Holy Spirit told me to do this. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. There is no connection between how often you talk about something and how passionately you talk about it and whether that thing is actually embodied in that community. Some of the least gracious human beings I've ever met have been Reformed Christians. Some of the least Holy Spirit Christians I've ever met have been Pentecostals who speak in tongues or Charismatics who raise their hands in worship. I'm not critiquing any of that, by the way. I'm just saying that if you say they talk about the Holy Spirit a lot, therefore the Holy Spirit is more present in that place than in other places, that's a category mistake. They talk about grace a lot, therefore this is the real community of grace. That does not follow at all. There are a lot of people talking about justice frequently and loudly in our culture. That's not bad per se, but it doesn't mean anything by itself. It doesn't mean anything by itself. God's justice is ultimately what we care about. And so here is, and if you're hearing that as a critique of this group or that group, yes, it's just, but also the other group. This is a critique of all of us. And so here is what I want you to notice in the middle of the psalm. After the first two verses where the critique comes from God, that how long, verse 2, will you judge unjustly? Show partiality to the wicked. This is what God desires from those in authority, whether other gods and religions, ideologies, or just human leaders. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Here is a very simple 
principle I want to at least suggest to you, I think it's true, is that the way you can identify the presence of injustice in a moment, in a society, in a community, is not by bringing abstract principles to bear upon from the outside, is not by running it through the grid of your ideology. Oh, well, I know this is just and that's not happening and so therefore, but it's this, it's noticing whether victims are being cared for or whether they're being overlooked and accumulated. The presence of victims is the way you know where injustice is, not ideology and not abstract formulas. And again, the more that you are ideological and abstract, the more you will have blinders on to explain why the victims your ideology produces and leaves behind. They're not actually victims or they are a necessary sacrifice. What are you gonna do? You gotta break an omelet. You gotta break a few eggs if you wanna make an omelet. But the victims of other groups and other ideologies, that's the real cause for outrage in the world. And so when there are the weak, the fatherless, the poor, the needy, the vulnerable, the oppressed that are either being created Created by the way we live or are being overlooked and ignored by the way we live, you know that there is injustice present. Injustice is not an ideological abstract thing to argue about in philosophy class. It is connected to concrete human beings whose needs are not being met and who are being mistreated. Um, in liberation theology, which started primarily in Latin American cultures, um, in countries where both the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church were often seen as hypocritical in spiritualizing everything and even justifying the status quo of tyrants and broken systems, liberation theology, um, one of the things that it's most well known for, and like all theologies, is not perfect. None of our theologies are perfect. But one of the things it's most well known for is that God has, here's the quote, a preferential option for the poor. That God doesn't look at situations abstractly. God looks at situations and he immediately looks for victims and how he can come to their defense. That's God's priority in every situation. Um, Daniel Carroll Rodas, a Latin America, uh, Latino American scholar today, great theologian, says that maybe we should not use the word poor there because it sounds just economic. And maybe we should use the word vulnerable. God has a preferential option for the vulnerable. When people's needs are not being met, when they are being mistreated, when they have no other recourse in human society to say, help me, stop treating me like this, and it falls on deaf ears, God prioritizes those people in those moments in the world. And therefore, so should the church. And to the degree the church does not, to that degree, our God will seem like a fiction to people who walk through the world. And so... Um, Injustice is not known ideologically, but by the presence of victims. Last point. Um, look down a little farther in Psalm 82. Here's a two-tiered point. Verse 5. After the call to give justice to the weak, to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, these people with authority who can actually do something potentially about the situation, then verse 5, it is a cynical verse, it is a critique, but it's there, Instead of coming to the aid of the weak, the vulnerable, the afflicted, the destitute, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I was going to start with this, and I forgot, so I'll say it real quick. One of the biggest critiques of religious people today, when injustice rears its head, whether through human injustice, like, say, a school shooting, or whether a natural disaster or catastrophe is that when religious people respond with thoughts and prayers, that's often critiqued today. 
And, and, and there is something about that that's unfair. For instance, sometimes critiquing somebody who responds to injustice with prayer can just be a way of saying that you think your agency is more potent in the world than God's is. And that's not true. It can also overlook the fact that posting on social media and showing up at protests and identifying with this is the secular version of thoughts and prayers. It is all posturing and it does nothing. And so thoughts and prayers, just to be fair, let's not be too quick, but I would also say this, there is something about the critique of a religious person who just says thoughts and prayers that is absolutely right. Because the reality is that is so often a way to evade having any sense of responsibility to do something. Having any sense of responsibility to care, to sacrifice, to enter in in solidarity. And so here is something that Psalm 82 reminds us of. When it says that they are characterized by blindness by darkness, what it means is this, and and at the very end, in just a moment, I'm going to come back and try to guard against the other extreme, but here is an extreme I, I actually want you to go to. Here's a very challenging claim, but one that I think is undeniably true. 99.99% of the injustice of the world, you cannot do anything about, and you will never be able to do anything about. No matter how many hours, no matter how much you prioritize it, most of the injustice of the universe, you cannot do anything about. And we'll come back to this. Now, the danger of acknowledging that is that you fall into cynicism or despair, and you just become one of those people who's like, well, because I can't do anything, I'm just gonna like enjoy my life, I'm just gonna prop up the status quo, but that is true. But here is something that is true. Those who have power and authority in any given situation, a father and a family or a mother in a family, a king, a president, a senator, a politician, a professor in a classroom, a university president, in every community there are people who are more in position to do something about it than other people. And Psalm 82 says, and the most frustrating thing in the universe is that so often they are ignorant they, ref- they, they are without knowledge and understanding, and they walk in darkness. Here are a couple of quotes that, that are, I think are more broadly true than just injustice, but I want you to hear these. Alan Jacobs is one of the most gifted Christian teachers that I know of today. And a couple of years ago, in his 60s, towards the end of his teaching career, he says this reflecting on what he's learned about human beings. He says, if I had to name only one thing I have learned in my many years of trying to make arguments, it's this. You cannot convince people of anything that they sense it is in their interest not to know. You cannot convince people of anything that they sense I would prefer for this not to be true. When those with power have victims come to them and say this is injustice, those in power would prefer that not to be true. Because it's inconvenient, it is a critique. Upton Sinclair, almost 100 years ago, said this in America about the um, increasing wealth differentiation between the uber-rich and everybody else. By the way, just a couple of years ago, most recent stat I saw, 1% of the American population owns 32% of the economy. The bottom 50% of the American population has access to 2.5% of the American economy. That is objectively a situation of injustice. Even if, and it's not true, but even if every moment to that end game was characterized by nothing illegal happened, nothing unethical happened, if 1% has that much, 
and the bottom 50% does not have enough even for their most basic needs, that has become a situation that is objectively unjust. That is, I think, one of the most obvious things about modern Western society, that that is an unjust situation, and yet we resist it year after year, decade after decade, and Upton Sinclair said this about the growing divide between the rich and the have-nots 100 years ago. It is difficult to get a man or a woman to understand something when their salary depends on their not understanding it. It is difficult to get a human being to understand something when their salary depends on their not understanding it. We see this all the time. Finally, one more example. James Baldwin, during the Civil Rights Movement, talks about how so often the response of white communities to racism in the African-American community is to say, well, if dads would just stick around and not abandon their families, if you just study hard and not be lazy, if you stop committing so much crime and everything that goes wrong is your own fault and none of it is because of injustice. And James Baldwin says, at a certain point, as you're having conversations with such people, he says, you realize you don't know because you don't want to know. You don't know because you don't want to know because the real answer would be deeply threatening to the way you currently live. And so I would encourage all of us in whatever sphere of influence, responsibility, power we have, to notice that when a critique comes to you about injustice, you are much less a priori likely to be open to the truth of it than you are when somebody is critiquing somebody else about injustice. You don't know because you don't want to know. It is difficult to get a human being to understand something when their salary depends on not understanding it. Alan Jacobs, one more time, you cannot convince people of anything that they sense it is in their interest not to know. This is what Psalm 82, verse 5, is saying. These judges of the earth, whose one role is to bring justice and to care for the weak and the needy, instead they have neither knowledge nor understanding, and they walk about in darkness. Not because they're dumb, not because nobody is talking to them, but because they don't want to know. And so this is what I meant a second ago when I said, no matter how many letters you write to senators and politicians, no matter how many protest marches you go to, no matter how eloquent your argument, no matter how passionate your tears when you speak to someone in power, no matter how much you advocate, it will always be true in your generation and in the generations to come that mostly people will not listen. Mostly the judges of the earth will not repent. Mostly injustice will still be the result. And Psalm 82 does not hide the fact that that has always been the case. If in the black church and in the African-American community, Psalm 82 is coming from the people of Israel. If there is any group in the history of the world that knows you cannot rely on those in power outside of your community to turn a sympathetic ear to your needs, it is the people of Israel. They know that the judges of the earth, this is usually what happens. And Psalm 82 also does not play down how significant it is. Verse 5 ends with, And as the judges of the earth refuse to see, refuse to have knowledge or understanding, refuse to come into the light, but instead walk in darkness, the result is that all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Here is what that's saying in one little line. If, if our gross national product economically diminished by 40% in the next five years, that would be frustrating, that would be scary, but that would be bearable. If America no longer existed in 50 years or in 500 years, that would, that would be scary for many of us, but God would still rule. There are, if the Yankees don't win the World Series for another 15 years, that would be really frustrating, but all of that would be okay. 
Injustice is the one thing that is intolerable. Injustice is the one thing that threatens to tear the fabric of the world apart. Injustice is the one thing that nothing else works when it is there. Injustice is the one thing that cannot be tolerated. It is the one thing that must be avoided no matter what else comes and needs to be that central priority, and yet so often it is not. Abraham Heschel, a famous Jewish theologian of the 20th century, said, here's what you learn from the prophets. You learn from every other religion, every other ideology, that justice is a good thing. It's a fine goal. It's even a supreme ideal that's commonly accepted in all civilizations. What you learn from the prophets is that the, um, the presence of injustice is a sense of the monstrosity of it. The fact that it cannot be tolerated. That everything else must come to a halt until this issue gets figured out. One of our great Old Testament scholars today, Patrick Miller, says this about Psalm 82. How much does justice in human society matter? Israel never gave a clearer or more radical answer to that question, even in the strongest words of Amos and Jeremiah, Isaiah and Micah, than in this psalm, Psalm 82. Justice turns out to be the cornerstone of the rest of the universe. The cosmos, the universe, depends upon the maintenance of justice in the human community, not only in Israel's midst, but in all communities. And when justice is not maintained, then the very foundations of the earth are shaken. The world itself threatens to fall apart back into chaos once more. That is how much justice matters. It is not just one of the virtues. It is not even just a high ethical demand. Justice is the issue on which the very claims of who God is are finally settled. Justice is the central activity by which God is known to be God, and without it, the universe itself cannot survive. Some of you will remember that one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s primary frustrations during the civil rights movement was white moderates saying, hey, good goal, but calm it down, wait, wait, be patient. And one of his collection of essays is called Why We Can't Wait. And he understood Psalm 82. You can wait on a lot of other things. You can wait to go on a bigger vacation until later. You can wait to find the person you're going to marry for another year or two. We cannot wait in the presence of injustice. Everything else begins to fall apart where there is injustice. And so um, this might seem a surprising way to end this. This has to be a, a one-time sermon, and this is even a short sermon. There are a, Every truth can be abused. And so I don't want you to hear that I'm only or even necessarily mainly saying this. There is a lot of things that we need to do in response to injustice. But I want you to notice that at the end of Psalm 82, here's where it ends. The prophet has critiqued the leaders publicly. They have heard him. They continue to have no knowledge or understanding and to walk about in darkness, even though everything is tattering. Everything is falling apart. Nobody listens And then a sentence of death that if you guys continue to be characterized by injustice, eventually this whole thing's going to come down. And that has been the end of empire after empire, civilization after civilization in human history. This is what finally brings it down. But the final line is this. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. I just said a minute ago that I am sympathetic to critiques of thoughts and prayer. I would just say this, if prayer is not your primary response to injustice, you are a deeply unrealistic human being. If you think showing up at more protests 
or this political party getting elected or that ideology coming to rise is going to be the end of injustice, I would encourage you to read something, human history. That never works. Injustice has dominated every generation in the history of the world. The one thing that Israel knows works is underneath the exodus. It's underneath the return from exile. It's underneath why God raised Jesus from the dead is that in response to the prayers of his people, God does rise up. God does intervene. I, again, I am not saying we only do this. There are moments where it is um, a, a, a abstaining from our duty to only or mainly do this. I'm just saying that if you walk through this, and, and here's the way I would summarize it here at the end, Psalm 82 tells us two things about the universe that are really frustrating, that they're both there together. The first is this, that justice is the central requirement for human flourishing. Justice is absolutely essential. Here's the second thing Psalm 82 tells us, that it is impossible because people are awful. And so justice is the one thing that is essential, and it is the one thing that we are unable to bring about generation after generation after generation. If you believe both of those things, if you see both of those things, if you feel both of those things, the way you will pray after that will be very different than the way you pray before it. If you just immediately respond with thoughts and prayers, that's because one, you don't think it's essential, and two, you don't think it's impossible. You just don't care. If on the other side of this, you see this is the central priority in every civilization, in every family, in every moment, and there is nothing we can do to really bring it about, then what are you going to do? You're going to fall on your knees and you're going to say, rise up, O God, and bring justice to the weak and the fatherless. Now, let me say this as we end. It is absolutely true, in case you might mishear me, that you, will, you cannot pray this prayer, rise up, O God, without signing up to get out of your seat yourself. Absolutely. But nonetheless, rise up, O God, is not even close to exhausted by, therefore, I'm going to get up this week and I'm going to go to a protest or I'm going to give money to this. I'm going to do this. God rising up is so much more than anything we could do. And so as we go into a time of prayer in a bit, I, I want to encourage us, whether it's quietly, whether it's out loud, part of our ministry as the church is to cry out to God year after year to rise up for those that... Yes, we're going to do everything we can. We have to. But even if we were the most sinless, saintliest, Holy Spirit-filled church in the history of church history, which we are not and we will not be, most of what is wrong in New York City we wouldn't even begin to touch. Most of what is wrong in America we would not begin to touch. Most of what is wrong in the world we would not begin to touch. You can spend the rest of your life putting blinders on and saying, if me and my four cool friends from Brooklyn, we just keep doing what we're doing, justice is right around the corner. Or you can say, despair, give up. I would deeply encourage you not to do either of those things, but to commit to coming into God's presence, among many other things, and saying, God, rise up for those who have no other recourse, whatever that looks like. This is ultimately what Psalm 82 is saying. Let me read one verse in Proverbs, and then we'll go into the Lord's table. There is a way of reading this. This is Proverbs 29. At the beginning of the process, where something goes wrong, you just don't want to be bothered. You just don't care. And you go to this as a way to shirk your responsibility. There is another way to read this on the other end of calling leaders out 
seeing that they don't care, trying your best to bring justice and noticing that I can't do it, we can't do it, and noticing that we are helpless to change the situation, and then coming to this verse becomes a very different experience. Here is something the people of Israel learned through the centuries. Proverbs 29, verse 26. Many people seek the face of a ruler, a human ruler, for what goes wrong, but it is from the Lord that a person finally gets justice. But it is from the Lord that a person finally gets justice. That's something that Psalm 82 knows, that God is a more potent source of justice than kings and presidents are. That God is a more potent source of justice than any Democrat or every Republican ever has been or ever will be. And actually expects God to show that by the way he works in the world. And so let's regularly be people. And again, this is coming all the way back to the beginning. It is one of the central critiques of spirituality that it's a suburban turning away from the problems of the world to focus on your own emotional subjective experience and feel better about life. That's not what Christian spirituality is. Christian spirituality sends us crying and broken into situations of injustice, demanding, insisting in faith that God rise up for them as he has risen up for others throughout history. Um, And so let's pray and then let's go into the Lord's table.